Father in heaven, we thank you for your great mercies to each of us. We're grateful that you have watched over us and you have blessed us. We thank you for that. Lord, I'm praying for each one here that you would help them with their finances. First of all, I pray that for those who are unemployed, they would find work. And for those who are employed, that they would be able to keep their work and that you would give each of us wisdom to know how to manage our affairs in a way that maximizes the capacity for financial security. And Lord, we pray for the church, the ministries of the church, the building itself, and all that takes place here can't happen unless you bless it financially. So we're praying for that. And Lord, as we are about to open your word, we pray for our hearts. We ask that we would be taught by you, that we would be inspired by you, and that you would work powerfully and magnificently, wonderfully in our lives, and that we would walk out of here changed. We would walk out of here with a clearer concept of you and a greater resolve to walk with you. We're praying, Lord, that what takes place here today will have eternal ramifications. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our series regarding Moses. Last week we were with him when the children of Israel received the manna. Now, just a little bit of background will help all of us as we approach this study today. If you want to turn ahead in your Bibles, we'll be in Exodus chapter 16. Moses was a shepherd, and God approached Moses and said, I want you to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites from their slavery, from the bondage that they were in. Moses did not want to do that. He resisted God, but eventually submitted to the Lord. And Moses and his brother Aaron went to Pharaoh and told Pharaoh that God has said to let his people go. Pharaoh said, well, who is God that I should obey him or listen to his voice? And after 10 plagues, Pharaoh did let the people go. Now, they were the shortest way to Canaan or to the Promised Land would have been to go north, but that was inhabited by the Philistines, a very warlike people. And God said his people were not ready to face those types of trials, so he directed them to go to the south. As they went south, they came to a place where they were trapped, basically. There were mountains on each side, the Red Sea on the east side, and Pharaoh and his army was marching down upon them to destroy them or to take them back into slavery. So the people cried out. They were obviously in great angst, had a great deal of fear. Moses lifted up his staff and he prayed. And the Bible says an east wind began to blow and it blew for some time. And the waters of the Red Sea were piled up and they walked across on dry ground. When they came to the other side, they praised God, they rejoiced. The daughters of uh, Israel, along with Miriam, danced and celebrated their great deliverance. Three days later, they faced a trial. They had run out of water, and they came to a place called Mara, which in the Hebrew means bitter. And that's what was there, bitter water. And so again, 
They're at the uh, extreme of their capacities and God provided. Moses prayed about it and God said, take this tree, throw it in the water, and the water became sweet. They journeyed from there and they came to a place where there were a number of wells and palm trees and they stayed there for several weeks. Then they began to journey again and this time they've run out of food. And in their expressions, they're accusing Moses of wanting to kill them. Why did you bring us out here into the wilderness to kill us? We had it better in Egypt as slaves. When we ate from the flesh pots of Egypt, we had meat, we had bread to the full, and here you brought us out here to starve us in the wilderness. Well, God heard all that, obviously, and he responded. We're going to start with verse 11 of chapter 16. And the Lord said to Moses, or the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And when the, the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. They called it manna, which is a transliteration of the phrase, what is it? So let's think about this. In the evening, an extraordinary flight of quails came over the camp. It was actually, though, not an uncommon occurrence in that part of the world. On the Sinai Peninsula, quails migrated from the south to the north, going into the inner regions to avoid the heat in the south. And then they would go back at another time of the year to avoid the cold. And they happened to be passing over the camp of the Israelites. Now quails over in that part of the world will fly until they're so tired they can't move and they go down to the ground, and while they're resting, they're basically helpless. And during that time when they're resting, they're easily clubbed with sticks or grabbed by bare hands. What was unusual about this event was the season of the year. It was not the time for that migration. Also, what was unusual was the extraordinary number of quails that showed up, enough to feed over two million people. And, of course, the timing of the event. God said, tonight, you're going to eat meat. So those three things, it wasn't the right time of the year, the extraordinary number of quail that came, and the timing of the event set it apart as something done from God. The next morning came the manna. Now, that was a frost-like substance on the ground. They would gather it, they would bake it, broil it, or boil it, or eat it raw. And if they left it till the sun came out hot, it melted it away, and 
if they kept it till the next day, it would breed worms and stink. So all that was happening. However, in that part of the world, there was a tree, a tamarisk tree, that when pricked by a sharp object or a small insect, that tree would exude drops of white, sweet, honey-like substance, which the shepherds would lick and eat. I have no idea of its nutritional value, but they liked it. It was sweet and honey-like. But it also, if not used immediately, would melt in the sun. This was known as the natural manna. In fact, there are many scholars that believe the word manna, when the Israelites said, what is it, manna, that they are not the originators of that term, but the people on the peninsula use that term for that tamarisk tree and the ointment that would exude from it. Now, the interesting point. It is found from the middle of May to about the end of July. If you were to harvest all of that honey-like substance from the tamarisk trees on the peninsula, you'd come up with about 700 pounds a year. That's not enough to feed the Israelites one day while they're in the wilderness. So why do I bring this up? Well, I want to teach you a principle that they had to learn and a principle I believe we need to learn too. First of all, bread and meat were given to the Israelites, both directly sent by God, yet both given in a way that while unbelief was inexcusable, it was still possible. Think about it. There they are at the Red Sea. The wind began to blow and it blew hard for a long time and the water was pushed up. Now, did God do that or did it just happen? Well, think about it. Think of the timing of it. Think of the prayer involved and think of the need of the people and how it worked and the timing of when the wind stopped and drowned Pharaoh's army. Now you have these birds. That's not uncommon for these birds to fly through these regions. However, it's not the time of the year for the birds. And certainly to have that many flying and then for them to be told that it's going to happen that night. Then this white substance called manna. Well, some of the trees exude the very similar type of thing. So is God really doing this or are these just natural events maybe on hormones a little bit? Well, I want you to know that many, many times God is working in their lives and in our lives and we won't see some type of fantastic phenomena. God's timing, his direction, his power are all taking place sometimes in very subtle ways. Now, in the Bible, God works in such a way that if someone is looking for a way to not believe, it is possible, inexcusable, but possible. God worked that way back then. God works that way now. If you and I do not want to believe, we'll find excuses for it. 
If we want to believe, we'll find plenty of evidence for that. That principle still holds today. And what we're going to look at today is unbelief. Because unbelief is something that is extremely important to understand. And first of all, we need to understand what doubt means. Many people, if you ask them what unbelief is, they would say, well, it's doubting. Actually, not according to the scriptures and not necessarily even according to Webster's Dictionary. Doubt in Webster's Dictionary means uncertainty of belief or opinion that often interferes with decision-making. Doubt, according to Webster, is an uncertainty. You may have a belief or opinion, but now due to circumstances, there's an uncertainty about those beliefs or opinions and that it is interfering with decision-making. What should we do? Should we do this or should we do that? That's doubt. I don't know what to do. In the Bible, the words translated doubt in, in the Bible are referring to perplexity. Some literally means double standing, implying in uncertainty which way to, way to take. I don't know whether to go this way. I don't know whether to go that way. I'm just standing here. It's describing being anxious. It is a wavering between hope and wavering between fear. I'm going to show you a couple of examples given in the Bible that teach us what doubt is. Please turn to John 13. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. This story takes place on Thursday night. Jesus will die the next day. And he's talking to 12 men in the upper room. They've just celebrated communion together, what we call communion. In verse 21, Jesus says, uh, says, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Wow. Look at verse 22. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. The word perplexed there in the Greek is translated doubt in other versions of the Bible. King James Version, they looked at each other doubting of whom he spake. It, uh, in the Amplified Version, says puzzled as to whom he could mean. The New International Version, at a loss to know which of them he meant. So here you have Jesus saying, one of you is going to betray me, and the disciples are perplexed. They're doubting. They're puzzled. They're at a loss to know who it could be. That's biblical doubt. Look at Acts chapter 25. The apostle Paul had been arrested and Felix held a trial, but Felix didn't know what to do with him because he had no clear understanding of the Jewish laws and concepts and all that type of stuff. 
King Agrippa came by and so Felix is talking to Agrippa and he's explaining why he wants to give the case over to King Agrippa. So Acts 25 verse 20, Felix says, and because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. In the King James Version it says, because I doubted of such manner of questions. The Amplified Version says, and I being puzzled to know how to make inquiries into such questions. The NIV, I was at a loss to know, or I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. This is the biblical concept of doubt. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 8. Here it becomes very clear for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 8. Paul is describing what he's been through as a minister. He says we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Perplexed is the Greek word for doubting. We are filled with doubt. Doubt will be a constant companion to all of us who journey from here to heaven. We will find ourselves perplexed, anxious, wavering between hope and fear, puzzled. We'll be at a loss to know what to do. Let me ask you, is doubting a sin? No. Doubting is what happens to us. And some could say, well, you could doubt yourself into sin. I'm sure you could. You could ride that down and begin to make excuses against believing. Now, in John chapter 6, we have a very interesting story in the Bible. The Gospel of John chapter 6 begins with Jesus feeding 5,000 men, we're told. It doesn't count the women and children. So let's just say 15,000 people. And they're fed with five barley loaves and two little fish. Story begins with a large crowd, 15,000 people. Jesus begins teaching. They find him the next day. He's teaching some more. He's teaching some more. And ultimately, when it's over, his disciples, those that have followed him, have left him. And the only ones left are the 12. So we go from 15,000 down to 12 in this one chapter. And it's because of the teachings of Jesus. Now we're going to begin in John 6, verse 66. From that time, the Bible says, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. These men are filled with doubt. They're perplexed, just like the others that left. But they make a decision, they make a choice that they're going to stay with God. Yesterday, in studying this with a group of men, one of the men there described an experience that he had regarding this very passage of Scripture. His mother was very ill, and he was praying. He was asking God, please, heal mom. 
bless her. And he claimed Bible promises. He pointed out things that God said he would do. His mother was a faithful follower of God. He was trying to be all these things according to the scriptures. He fully expected God to heal his mother. But she got worse. And she was not healed and died. It cast him into a faith crisis. Thinking really, is God real? Does he even exist? Is this just a made-up thing to make us feel good when things are going good? And he said he began to really contemplate what does he believe about God? At this point, he was so disappointed in God, so filled with doubt that he didn't even know if God existed. So he looked at his options. And he surmised he had three options. One option was continue believing in God. The second option was not do that and just believe what the devil said. Believe in the devil. Follow the devil. The third option was follow after the teachings of Buddha or Muhammad or some other Christian, excuse me, some other spiritual leader. So as he weighed his options, he thought he's not going to become a Buddhist, not going to become a Muslim. That's out. He's not going to become a worshiper or follower of the devil. That's out. So what is he left with? He's left with God. And where Jesus says, do you also want to go away? Lord, to whom shall we go? And he said in his doubts, he looked at God and he said, I've got nowhere else to go. I'm going with God. And God worked him through those doubts. God worked him through all the pain and so forth and so on. And he's a strong follower and believer in the Lord today. Doubts will come. Doubts will assail us on our journey between here and heaven. Doubts are not a sin. Doubts are an opportunity for us to look up, even with tears in our eyes, and say, God, I got nowhere else to go but you. And I don't understand what's going on, but I'm not leaving you. I'm not going to leave. What about unbelief? Is unbelief a sin? Well, let's let the Bible tell us. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, and we'll read verse 8. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 21, and we read verse 8. Here's a list of behavior that will keep people out of heaven. Says the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. Is unbelieving, is unbelief a sin? Yes. Yes. Now remember, we're not talking about doubt. We're talking about unbelief. And we're looking at how the Bible 
defines unbelief. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, and we begin reading in verse 12. This is describing the Israelites' journey and why many of them did not make it to the promised land. It says verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. What is the source of unbelief? An evil heart. An evil heart is the source of unbelief. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. You see, God sent the wind and the sea parted. God sent the quail, but quail have come before. God sent the manna, but there are other things that kind of look like it. If they wanted to believe, there was plenty of evidence. If they didn't want to believe, there was opportunity. And they chose unbelief. Unbelief is used as an excuse to sin against God. At its core, it means untrustworthy, unfaithful, denial of the revelation of God. Unbelief is saying God is untrustworthy, God is unfaithful, and unbelief denies the revelation of God. That is unbelief. Now let me shock you for a moment. This may be eternal life to some here today. Unbelief wears many different faces. And we're going to draw a spectrum from humility to full-blown clenched fist, clenched teeth, rebellion against God. Unbelief is on that spectrum. And I'm not going to go ahead and describe the clenched fist, clenched jaw against God. You're not there or you wouldn't be here. However, there may be some here today or some listening through the internet or will hear on the radio that actually is struggling with unbelief because of false humility. Let me describe what that is. How many of you, excuse me, let me say that again. How many of you have ever heard someone say this? And maybe you've said it. I am too sinful. God cannot forgive me or save me. I am too sinful. God cannot forgive me or save me. Now that sounds very humble. It sounds like somebody's come to grips with who they really are. But let me ask you something. Is it true? 
No. It is actually an expression of rebellion that is used as an excuse to continue in those sins that they claim God won't forgive them. Now, I want to use two illustrations. We're going to use John Smith in each of these illustrations. The Bible says in the book of Romans that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks God, they've all gone astray, so forth and so on. It goes down, down, down. It says there is none righteous. The pastor was preaching on that one day. And after the service, a man came up to him and said, I didn't find myself in that list. So the pastor says, what's your name? And I don't know what the guy's real name was, so I just named him John Smith. And if you happen to be here, John, I'm sorry for that. The guy said, my name is John Smith. And the pastor said, I've been wanting to meet you all my life. Let me read to you what this says. There is none righteous, no, not one, except John Smith. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God except John Smith. And he went down through the whole list inserting John Smith's name. And eventually John said, I, I get it. I get it. I'm in that list. So if this list is all inclusive, there is none righteous. What about another list? Let's go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. In verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, we're good with that. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is everybody except John Smith. Right? Same logic. Is there anybody who is so sinful, God can't forgive them? Is there anybody that is so bad, God cannot cleanse them from all their unrighteousness? That person does not exist. God has said, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If I don't accept that, it is denying the revelation of God. It is not doubt, it is unbelief. And that's where it gets serious. Because some of us today might be thinking, well, I'm just so sinful, I don't think God can forgive me. Folks, that is not being humble. That is not being doubtful. That, according to Scripture, is harboring a rebellious attitude of unbelief. God says... He will forgive. Now, this has a sister that branches off from it, and it goes something like this. I'm not sure I'm going to heaven. I want to ask you a question. This is extremely important. Is it possible for us to know if we're going to heaven? Is it? Well, what does the Bible say? Let's look. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. 
He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. How do we have life? Jesus Christ. Now everybody except John Smith who has the Son has life, right? No. Everybody who has the Son has life. What is the point that it turns on? Whether Christ is our Savior or not. Means, have I accepted him as my Savior? Now if I have asked Jesus to come into my heart, if I have asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins, has he come into my heart? Has he forgiven me my sins? Has he cleansed me from all unrighteousness? He has. Now, if I don't believe that, what is that? It's not doubt. It's unbelief. And if I'm listening to people who say, you can't know, you can't know, you can't know, then you need to take them to this next verse. It says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Can I know I'm going to heaven? Yes. It is not arrogant. It is not boastful. It is believing. If I have Christ in my heart, I am going to heaven. How do I know if I have Christ in my heart? If I've prayed that prayer, Jesus come into my heart. If I've prayed that prayer, God has embraced me as his own and I have eternal life right now. Now, if I don't believe that, it is an act of unbelief. It is rebellion, it is unfaithfulness, and it is a denial of the revelation of God. Remember, unbelief is not doubt. If I was unbelief, excuse me, if I was doubting, I wouldn't know what to do. So I want to ask you a question. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Now if you haven't, I'm going to teach you how. It's very simple. You pray a prayer like this. Father in heaven, I ask Jesus to come into my heart. I ask him to forgive my sins. I ask him to be my savior. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've done that, praise God. If you've not done that, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to bow our heads. And those of you who have prayed that prayer, you're going to pray for the others here who haven't prayed that prayer, that they will pray that prayer. So let's bow our heads, everybody. Bow our heads. Okay. Pray. Now, we've prayed that prayer. Can I know I'm going to heaven? In fact, let me ask you something. Could we reframe the whole salvation equation this way? I know I'm going to heaven, so now I should start acting like it. I should have hope in my heart 
I should have happiness in my heart. And I should be able to say, I'm going to heaven. How about you? And no matter what comes my way, life's perplexities, difficulties, hardships, questions, I may doubt, but I have already determined no matter what happens to me, I'm staying with God because I'm going to heaven. And so here's what I want you to do as we conclude this part of the service. I want you to turn to the person next to you. I want you to stick out your hand, shake their hand, and I want you to say, I'm going to heaven. How about you? How deep the Father's love for us. I invite you to stand now as we sing that as our closing song.